Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi, Stephen Price here. Just a warning, this podcast contains violence and quite a bit of bad language, so take care of yourself while you're listening. Do you remember the McLibel case? In 1990, McDonald's, you know, the giant hamburger company, sued a handful of London protesters for handing out leaflets that said McDonald's was cruel to animals and unfair to workers and its food was unhealthy. The defamation case stretched on for nearly 10 years. It was a financial and PR disaster for McDonald's, even though the courts eventually upheld some of its claims and awarded it damages. After the case, some astonishing information came out. One of the authors of the protesters' leaflet, the one that led to the 10-year defamation fiasco, was a long-haired anarchist called Bob Robinson. But it turns out that wasn't his real name. His real name was Bob Lambert, and he was an undercover police officer. He'd infiltrated the protesters' group as part of an undercover programme to gather information about groups the police saw as extremist. And he helped write that leaflet. In fact... Lambert wasn't the only police officer to infiltrate that group. Another one was John Dines, who, I feel a shiver of outrage any time I think about this, got into a two-year relationship with Helen Steele, who was one of the McLeibel defendants. She says he told her he wanted to spend the rest of his life with her. Helen Steele wasn't the only woman targeted by this undercover squad. Bob Lambert had a son with another activist, even though he was married to someone else. Another undercover officer fathered a child with an activist too. The way it worked was, the undercover squad stole dead children's identities and pretended to be them, then joined the protester groups. They committed crimes and goaded activists to commit crimes. They unlawfully searched houses, including sifting through love letters hidden in a locked toolbox. There's evidence that the officers also handed over information about the London protesters to McDonald's. In the end, a bunch of activists and Lambert's son sued the police and got huge settlements. It seems the police preferred to pay out rather than having to disclose the documents that would have shown all the things they got up to. Police are very secretive about their undercover operations. They're also very secretive about the Mr Big undercover operations. New Zealand police wouldn't talk to me about the David Little case or the Mr Big technique. They'd recorded almost the whole sting against David Little but they fought to keep as much of it from the defence team and the public as they could. In the end, though, the court ordered them to turn it all over. More than 80 hours of tape. The defence played about 30 hours of it to the jury. This is the first time in the world a court has been able to get this close to a Mr Big sting. I'm Stephen Price. This is Mr Little Meets Mr Big podcast about where the police can use a story to get to the truth about a murder. In this series so far, we've heard about the pros and cons of Mr Big Stings, and about why the police decided to run one on David Little. In this episode, we draw back the curtain, and you can see for yourself 
how the sting plays out. Remember, trust, honesty, loyalty. Fucking too bizarre a story for any to believe anyway if I did tell you the truth. If you were trying to bloody pull the wool over my eyes, it's unlikely that it would be successful. All right. I'll tell you the truth. The police are not best pleased that you're getting to hear about their Mr Big Sting. They worry that the undercover officers' voices might be recognised, which might put them in danger, or mean they can't do other undercover operations. That seems a bit speculative. The Crown didn't even say whether the key witnesses were still working undercover, and our High Court has said that Mr Big Stings aren't usually all that dangerous. After all, if the target figures out what's going on, they'll know there's a team of police on them, recording everything. I suppose there could be other and more dangerous undercover operations being targeted at people who listen to RNZ and might recognise the voice if we broadcast it. But that's not the only reason police aren't keen on this programme. They also think Mr Big is a valuable tool and if everyone knows about it, they won't be able to use it anymore. That feels like a better point to me. On the other hand, there's oodles of information about Mr Big available online and in the media and in court decisions, especially from Canadian stings. There's a Netflix series called The Confession Tapes with recordings of a Mr Big operation. They're coming to lock your ass up. Fuck, you got yourself in a pile of shit, man. How did you fucking do three people at once? Tell me what went on down there and I'm going to tell you how to take care of your problem. An Australian podcast called Case File does the same thing. What do you need to tell? Is there something you need to tell me or...? Um, and bearing in mind that, that this whole, what we do, is based on respect and honesty, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, I'll, 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 let me stop you there before you go on. Yeah. I'll, I'll let you know that I don't care what you've done. I really wanted to play the police tapes from David Little's trial for you, but we're not allowed. We offered to disguise the undercover officers' voices and hold back details that might identify them, but the police and the judge said no. Still, the judge agreed to let us tell you what's on the tapes. We've decided to do that because it's the only real way to understand what the Mr Big technique involves so that we can really debate whether it's a good idea. I think the public have a real interest in knowing how the police are using their powers in Mr Big operations. There are judges who agree. Here's what New Zealand's Justice Rainer Asher wrote in a different Mr Big case. Our country is not a police state. Restricting the freedom of the press to report on the details of undercover operations that utilise deception and that encourage the suspect to confess to specific crimes with the prospect of financial and other rewards prevents the public from being informed critics of what may be controversial police actions. What's more, our Law Commission recently recommended that the government control Mr Big Sting's better. More on that in a later episode. But as the government mulls those recommendations, it's surely fair enough that we know how these things play out. So let's take a look. It's 2014 and the police have decided to target David Little with a Mr Big Sting. It's called Operation Easel, a neat symbol of the fictional picture the police are about to paint around David Little's life. Step one in the operation is to brief the undercover team. That briefing is all about what they'll be doing during the sting. But the undercover agents aren't told about any of the evidence against David Little. That's so they can't mistakenly drop some of it into a conversation with David, which could blow their cover. 
it also means they can't unwittingly feed David information about the crime. When people make false confessions, it turns out they often draw on things the police or other people have told them, and that makes their confessions seem very real, like they knew something only the real killer would know. So if David Little does confess to Mr Big, his confession won't be tainted by anything the undercover officers have told him. On the other hand, whether it will be tainted by anything the police told David back in 2011, remember they interviewed him lots of times just after Brett went missing. Well, that's another question. Step two is to conduct surveillance on David Little and draw up a profile. They spy on him, work out his personality and his habits, consult a psychologist. It's pretty intrusive, as David's lawyer Christopher Stevenson told me. Tracking device in the car, uh, listening devices in, in the bedroom where he and his wife uh, slept, um, capturing their most intimate uh, moments, the, the phones, and um, there was... Uh, uh, physical surveillance too is followed around and there were photographs taken of him and so forth. Just a note, some of that surveillance was actually going on during the investigation when Brett disappeared back in 2011. Anyway, the undercover team find out David Little loves fishing. The fishing trip prize was specially picked to be enticing to him. They also find out he drinks a lot, he's something of a loner, and he's in a bit of a financial hole. Christopher Stevenson says the sting was designed to offer Mr Little everything that was missing from his life. So he was offered not just money, he was offered the sort of friendship and sense of status and importance moving up in life. After hooking David Little into the organisation with the fishing prize, police start reeling him in. Nick takes him along to help with jobs, small ones at first, repossessing a car or collecting money from sex workers. Then they become increasingly criminal, casing the security at jewellery stores, being a lookout for burglary. Within a few months, they were staging a million-dollar drug deal with an Asian cartel. That might seem pretty exciting, but what you notice most when you hear hours of this on end is how fundamentally dull it is. Nick and David talk, mostly in the car. There are long silences, sometimes a bit awkward. They talk about family, about the traffic, about the weather, about sports. It's how Kiwi blokes become friends, I guess. Because as far as David is concerned, Nick's becoming a close friend. Their talk is peppered with casual blokey swearing. They're showing each other they're real. They're not stuck up. They're tough. They're mates. Sometimes it gets a bit ironic. Like when David Little says, there's cops everywhere on this bloody road. Or when Nick points to a roadside cop and says, he's not very well hidden. Now, we can't tell you much about Nick or the other undercover officers. Their real identities are suppressed. Nick talked a lot about his life, and it seems like some of it was actually based on his real life. That puts me in a bit of a bind, because if I broadcast anything that identifies Nick, I'm breaking the law. So I asked the prosecutor, which parts are true? She said, I can't tell you that. I guess she'd be breaking it too. So you won't be hearing what Nick said about his family or where he lived or what medical conditions he might have had or any anecdotes about his dad. But that stuff was there. Nick was chatty. He was trying to get David to like him. But in those hours of tapes, even without the personal bits, you can get a sense of just how the Mr Big operatives weave their spell around their target. Now, because of that court order I told you about, we can't play you the tapes. But we've got some actors to read from the transcripts. A warning. 
as I said, it's quite a lot of swearing. So here's Nick telling David how important trust, honesty and loyalty are to the organisation. Nick brings this up more than a hundred times over the three months he hangs out with David. Yeah, that's the key, mate. You see, what happens with people who aren't honest, can't be trusted or are disloyal to us? Fucking showing the door and they're not coming back, you know? It's a fucking massive life opportunity missed. So if you want a piece of advice, mate, it's fucking grab it with both hands and just remember, trust, honesty, loyalty. Especially with fucking Scott, mate. He's got that many contacts, you know? You just need to be fucking straight up with him all the time. Shit's bumpy. It's okay to fuck up. It's okay to get yourself in the shit as long as you're honest. Scott will get you out of the shit. Scott, you'll remember, is Mr Big. The syndicate members tell David Little that the organisation is like family. Nick says... It's like having fucking ten brothers and you're all really fucking close without all the bitchiness and all the fucking arguing that brothers have, you know? In those three months, the undercover officers stage managed 24 scenarios with David, and one of them, they show him what happens if you're dishonest. Here's Nick kicking someone out of the gang for lying. Enough of your excuses. You've bullshitted me, lied to Scott. You don't lie. He's the one looking after us. Drink and piss on the job. I haven't been drinking today. Now give me the keys. Give me your phone. I've had a guts. I'll beat it. They show David money. Plenty of it. They get him to count and deliver stacks of cash. They involve him in drug deals with profits, they tell him, of hundreds of thousands of dollars. All up, they pay him $3,600 for his work, a few hundred dollars at a time. But they're constantly talking about a big payday for everyone coming up soon. Then he'll get a flash car and they'll all head off for a holiday on the Gold Coast. Nick asks David if he has a passport. It seems that some sex workers will be coming along... Nick jokes with one of them that she only needs to pack the bottom halves of her bikinis. Nick drives a late-model Porsche SUV, and he takes David to test-drive some cars. Nick's leaning toward a BMW. Nick asks, What would your dream car be if money was no object? But David Little's tastes are modest. Oh, I think it'll still just be a top-of-the-line Holden, eh? The gang worships Scott, Mr Big. He's top of the hierarchy. He's a good guy. He's loaded. He's got apartments everywhere. He's generous. He pays Nick's medical bills. He protects them. And he's meticulous about managing risks. He can fix anything. The horses Scott bets on never fail to come in. There's contacts everywhere. If you lie to him, he'll know. Nick tells David, I first met him and thought, oh, he's not... He's, you know, doesn't look like much. But fuck, he's got some contacts. He's into everything. Anything that makes money, he's into it. We go out and do it and he pays us. It's pretty bloody good he protects us from any any shit that might come our way. He's got some of the boys out of some shit just with... Well, I don't know how he does it. Contacts and fucking people he knows. They tell him how great it is when you get the nod from Scott. They say it's a life changer. It's awesome. The opportunity of a lifetime. It's like winning lotto every day. One member, CJ, says... Oh, mate, it's like having a hundred Christmases all rolled into one time of your life. They tell him they don't care what he might have got up to in the past. Whatever it is, doesn't matter. No one judges you. No one gives a fuck what you've done. If you're part of us, if Scott thinks you're worthy of being part of our group, fucking he'll sort whatever it is out and get no fucking questions asked. 
No one gives a shit because it's very, very hard to find people who are trustworthy, honest and fucking can be loyal. They heap praise on David, flattering him, even for pretty ordinary things. You got everything done every time you've ever been asked to do something. It's been spot on. Never late. Fucking, you know, got absolutely no complaints at all. But the truth is, David Little is not really a very promising recruit. He's not very gangster. He repeatedly miscounts money when given stacks to add up. When he's told to set up an alibi for someone by taking time-stamped photos using their phone in Nelson, he takes a photo of a shop window that shows himself in a reflection. When he's told to buy SIM cards for burner phones and make sure he doesn't get serial numbers in a row, he buys two with serial numbers in a row. He tells Nick he's twice dropped his cell phone in the loo. He once brings the wrong charger. He has trouble turning a new cell phone on. He nearly gets found out when acting as lookout. On the other hand, it's clear he's not dim. He's a competent builder. He can be talkative. As the undercover officers note, he's a close observer. And when they were going to set up that alibi in Nelson, it's David who points out that they shouldn't use their own credit card to buy the travel tickets. Still, even when he makes mistakes, they butter him up, because the heart of the police strategy is for Nick to make friends with David. They chat while Nick drives David to jobs. They talk about their families. David's dad was watching rugby half an hour before he died. Nick says his dad was an appalling driver. David says he loves extremely spicy curries. Nick says he gets wicked farts every time he eats Burger King or McDonald's. They smoke cigarettes together. Nick jokes about trying to quit. Nick's looking forward to some time off. David tells Nick he's sick of doing the same old thing all the time. They go to the movies. What are you not telling me? The pub. One time they head off to, this is very gangster, to Papa Museum. Nick calls David his mate. I like you, mate. You're a fucking good guy. Bloody nice guy. Just a mate of mine. Never ever let me down. So it's pretty jarring when we hear the officers talking behind David Little's back. They make fun of him for idolising them. They say it's painful to have to talk to him. They call him socially fucked. When I first heard about the Mr Big technique, I wondered if the undercover police might feel a bit conflicted. Did they ever think, shit, what if he's innocent? What am I doing to him? But it seems they don't. Maybe that's inevitable. They're the good guys. They're trying to catch a bad guy. They've got to think of him as a target, not a person. Maybe that's how it needs to work. But there's something chilling about this to me. When I was, I don't know, 12, I played Saturday morning soccer for the local club. I wasn't very good. But I went along with everyone else to the prize-giving at the end of the season. It was a rowdy crowd of boys. Awards were announced for the best player, best goal, most improved player, that sort of thing. And the winners went to the front to collect their prizes. In the middle of this, a school friend of mine, not a close friend, one of the cool kids, came up to me and said, Hey, you got a prize. I hadn't heard it. Seemed pretty unlikely to me. But he insisted. They just called your name. Go on. And urged me to the front. I wandered forward. I got to the front. The attention of the room was like a heater on my back. I was excited, but I could also feel dread growing in my stomach. The man handing out the awards asked my name. And he told me that, no, I had not won a prize. Everyone laughed at me. I looked at my friend. He was laughing at me. It's 40 years later, and the humiliation of that moment still burns. The shame of my gullibility and foolish hope 
the terrible betrayal, the collapse of that little corner of my world in which that guy liked me, or at least respected me. It was a schoolboy prank. I was kind of a know-all, but it felt horrible. I was the one who wasn't in on the joke when the joke was on me. You'll remember the police tapped David Little's phone during the sting. Some of those tapes are played for the jury too. It's clear that this is a new world for him. He tells his wife, Helen, he can't believe what it's like in the Petoni Motel. Big TV, all the sky channels, palm trees. He marvels at the panini and quiche. We also get a window on how the sting is affecting his family. He's very sweet to his children and seems involved in their lives. He sells fundraising chocolate for a school camp, helps with a building project at the school. He has to juggle his real building work with the Mr Big jobs, and that means fibbing to some of his real customers and putting them off. But he doesn't want to pass up this huge opportunity. Money is tight. They're scrimping to pay for firewood when the kids come home sick. Helen keeps asking him if he can deposit some money in their account. The kids are missing him because he's away a lot, but they're also getting excited about the chance of a new job. There's no suggestion any of them know about the criminal side. Helen's also worried that David's away a lot, but she's understanding. She tells him, do what you have to do. My heart breaks for Helen and the children. They're victims here, whether or not David Little is guilty of murder. There's one particular scenario that best reveals the genius of the Mr Big Sting, and also its evil. It involves syndicate member CJ. Nick tells David Little that CJ has assaulted and raped a 14-year-old girl. Nick says... And he's probably been a bit too rough with her, so she's gone to the cops. Yeah, he's always liked them quite young. Obviously this one, he's gone overboard, but fuck it. It didn't... doesn't really matter what he's done, you know? He's, he's always going to be looked after. He's one of us, eh? Nick says CJ has fessed up to Scott about what happened. And CJ says the police have evidence against him, a pillow and some clothes with DNA on them. Scott immediately agrees to fix it. He calls on Lee, a crooked cop on Scott's payroll. Lee swipes the evidence against CJ from police lockup. Then he meets with David and Nick. He gives them the evidence. And David and Nick go to the beach and burn it. But then it turns out that the DNA material had already been sent to the lab, so burning the evidence didn't do the trick. Scott arranges a fake passport for Lee. Nick and David pick up the passport and give it to CJ. Before they take CJ to the airport, CJ has breakfast with David at the Ibis Hotel in Wellington. He thanks David for helping him out and praises the work he's doing, asks about David's family. Then he talks about his own experience. I'm not ashamed to admit it, you know, man. I love Scott. You know, he's looked after me like no one in my life has ever looked after me. And because he does that, I'd do anything for him, you know. Yeah. Like, that's how loyal I am, you know. I just didn't want him to be disappointed in me by finding out through someone else what I've done. And yeah, you know, yeah, he just fixes stuff, you know. There was no sort of, no criticism of me, no, come on, mate, what were you thinking? He was just like, all right. Look, we've got to sort this out. And then, you know, that's just how awesome he is. And I just didn't want it to be, I tell him this, but I don't tell him this, because I think it's okay. You know, Scott needs to be the one who decides. 
Yeah. Well, that's okay for our group. So I just thought, mate, I've just got to lay it all out on the table and... You've done the right thing. And he was he was awesome about it, you know. He, he just said, you know, he's like, look, I know you didn't have to tell me that. I know it's probably not going to be much of a problem for us. But, you know, he's like, I respect you for your honesty, mate. He's just like, you know, from what I understand, there's just, there's a couple of little loose ends with it. It's nothing. It's not going to come back and bite us. But he just wants to be all over it, you know, on top of... Of everything. Everything, yeah. And so we sort of did it, and it's just like, he doesn't put me in a bad light. It's just actually being up front with him. He's the way he treats me. Is, it's changed, you know? Yeah. It's like, he's almost got more respect for me now because I've just told him about it done it and I just that's why I love him you know like I've never known anyone else that I could tell anything and they wouldn't change the way they are towards me you know let's admire the genius here in this scenario David Little learns that Scott will never judge him for anything no matter how despicable Scott will stand by him What's more, Scott will help him fix any crime he might have committed. Scott can and will do whatever it takes. Scott even has a tame police officer who can steal evidence. Scott's like family. Better than family. But only if David is completely honest with him. Still, maybe we should pause and wonder, is this fair? Police know they're planning on arresting David Little if he confesses, and this might go before a jury. The jury might hate him for being prepared to help cover up the rape of a young girl, and it could affect their thinking about the real issue, whether he killed Brett. Lawyers call this prejudice, and here it's particularly poisonous. And really, it's woven into the fabric of the sting. If David Little wants to show a jury how he was influenced to confess to murder, he's going to have to reveal he was willing to commit other serious and abhorrent crimes with Nick. Anyway, you can see why David Little would be desperate to join up. He's so keen to impress Nick. During one of the scenarios, he tells him about some hidden guns he knows about, a .22 and a .223, and pretty good Nick that he could get for the gang. He takes Nick to cemeteries in Halcombe and Fielding to dig them up. They don't find the guns, but they do find some ammunition for a .223 rifle, a silencer and magazines for a .22, and a gun cleaning kit. You have to wonder, is this stuff... Brett Halls? Remember, he did own a .22 and a .223. They were seen up at Pitangi, and they disappeared when Brett did. Shortly after that, Nick asks David for his full name and date of birth. The corrupt cop Lee is going to check David out. It's a background check for Mr Big. Later, Lee slips Nick an envelope. Is it a copy of David's police file? Then it happens. David's passed all the tests. David gets the call to go and see Scott. Mr Big wants to see him. It's June 26, 2014, three years after Brett disappeared. This is it, mate. Sweet, mate. Can only go two ways. Sadly for David Little, he has underestimated the number of ways this can go. Nick prepares him for the big meeting, tells him to get a number two haircut, says they'll buy a new shirt, takes him back for a shower and a shave and some deodorant, tells him to do his buttons up, gets him there early. It's a matter of respect. 
He's grooming David Little to be like them. Nick gives him a hug. He says, here's your moment. David confides he's had a run-in with the cops. They set him up. Should he talk about it? He doesn't like talking about it. Nick says, just be straight up, mate. Nick takes him to a flash apartment building in Wellington. The room is elegant, white, minimalist. There's abstract art on the wall. Scott's in a suit and has a file with him. There's a big pile of cash nearby. A brochure of a Porsche and an iPhone box on a coffee table. Will these be David Little's reward? Again, the recording has been suppressed to protect Scott's identity. But we are allowed to tell you what happened. So just a reminder, these are actors. How are you, Dave? Good, mate. Good to see you. Thanks for coming here, matey. Hey, um, how are you feeling? All right? Scott praises David's appearance, calls him a bloody different person. David says, it's actually quite good taking a bit more pride in myself. Scott asks about David's family and fishing hobby. He offers David some fancy snapper and eel snacks, geared to David's love of fishing, you'd guess. He checks that David's comfy and not on drugs or booze. Scott keeps calling his organisation the family. He says they've got each other's backs, like Charles Upham in World War II. He asks if David wants to join. David says, yeah, he loves it. Then Scott gets to the organisation's three watchwords. Oh, there's three. There's three, uh, like, probably three pillars that uh, my organisation, my team sort of rest upon, OK? There's three words. Has Nick spoken to you about them? Yeah. What are they, mate? Do you remember them? Trust, loyalty. Yeah. Uh, and the other one, trust, loyalty. Oh, I've forgotten it, sorry. That would be honesty. You know, look, and... I guess the important thing for you to understand, Dave, is, look, I, I don't care if you bullshit to everyone else, you know, outside the family. But, you know, you do what you need to do. But it is bloody important within the family that we are honest. Yeah. There's no lies in the family. Yeah, I don't like lying anyway. So there's, there's absolutely, there's no room in the organisation for people that lie. Given what's really going on here... It's more accurate to say that everyone in this organisation lies, and lies convincingly, as Scott has done from the get-go. But that doesn't necessarily mean that David is going to. Inside the family, 100% honesty. Um, and, and, and look, you, you will have seen, uh, you know, you would have seen me sort out CJ's problem. Yes, I did. I was amazed by that. Hey, look, that's the sort of thing I can do. Easy, easy. And look... I'm not being a wanker or arrogant, but mate, I can fix anything. Yeah. I can fix anything. Well, that uh, was a major one. Beg your pardon? Oh, it was major. Bit of an eye-opener. Yeah. I actually felt a bit stinking away because really he shouldn't have done what he'd done. She was only 14 years old. Is this some redemption for David Little? How do you weigh the moral culpability of someone who covers up what he thinks is the rape of a child but actually isn't. Does it help if he says he feels bad about it? But Scott needs to make it clear that there'll be no blame. There's no downside to a confession. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not here to judge, Dave. Like, I'm not. I'm not almighty that looks down upon people and judges them for what they do or what they don't do. I mean, look, that's to be honest. Put it bluntly. I couldn't give a fuck what it is they've done. But Scott can't have any loose ends with any police investigations, 
because that could affect the organisation. The family. If they're looking at you and they see Nick, Nick to Doug, Doug to me, my door can't have it. And he reminds David about the time he picked up on David's mistake buying sequential SIM cards. Scott is all-seeing, like God. If you were trying to bloody pull the wool over my eyes, it's unlikely that it would be successful. Then Scott gets down to business. He tells him he's seen David's police file. So David knows, Scott knows, police suspect him of murdering Brett Hall. So look, in, in relation to that, Lee, uh, Lee tells me that it's something to do with a guy, Brett, that's gone missing. Now, if you want to talk to me about it, yes, we can. If you don't want to talk about it, you don't have to, OK? I just, I just want to make that crystal clear that, that you're a grown man, you're an adult, you're a big boy. If you don't want to talk about it, mate, we don't have to talk about it. This is a bit like a police caution. You know, you have the right to remain silent. You might think that's decent of the police. They're trying not to be too unfair. But bear in mind, it's a long way from a real caution, where you'd be told that what you were saying could be used in evidence against you. In any event, David Little denies it. Several times. I can tell you honestly, I did not do it. I just happened to be in the wrong time at the wrong... wrong place at the wrong time. Okay. And told the police the truth, and they just turned it on me. He explains that he thinks Brett's drug-dealing friends took him away and killed him. But Scott doesn't seem to be buying that. Hmm. Because, you know, as I've said, I've spoken to Lee. Yeah. Remember, Lee's the organisation's crooked cop. And Lee's given me some stuff. Oh, I've known Lee for a long, long time. Yes. I've known him a long time. Uh, he's helped me out with a lot of stuff. He, look, I trust him 1,000%. Um, I've got no reason not to. I've never, I've never had to question him, um, and, you know, like it or not, they're, they're the Sherlock Holmes, you know. They're the ones that do all the bloody digging around and stuff, and we've got to give them credit. Pretty good at their job, aren't they? Yeah. You know, having worked with Lee, I know he is fucking good at his job. I have no reason to doubt anything that he tells me. Yeah. Okay, um, and he tells me what he's told me and what I've read and bits and pieces that, that were given to me, um, mate, you're the one that they're looking at for it. You're... Oh, I know they're looking at me for it. Yeah. But that's the thing, is if I'd done it, I wouldn't be here now. Where would you be? In jail. Okay. Well, there's a there's a whole raft of things that I know about from Lee and that. And look, as I said to you, mate, like I don't give a fuck if you've knocked this boy over. I couldn't fucking care less. My loyalty's not to him, it's to you, okay? So here's the moment of truth. Or is it? David Little's now twice told Scott he didn't kill Brett. Is Scott pressing David to get past his fake story about the drug dealers and tell the truth? Or is he railroading him to admit to a murder he didn't commit? What sort of calculation is going on in David's head? On the one hand, it's pretty clear a confession to Scott is going to get him into the gang, the friends, the car, the trip, the big payday. It's all within his grasp. It's got to be massively tempting. 
but what's he weighing up on the other hand? Is he worried about the risks of telling Scott the truth that he's a murderer? He hasn't told anyone else. It's a dangerous thing to reveal. Or is he worried that the real truth, that he's not a murderer, isn't going to be acceptable to Scott? Is he figuring out a story that Scott will like better? It's a big moment for him. Bigger than he knows. Maybe the biggest moment in his life. He comes to a decision. All right. I'll tell you the truth. I did do it. I didn't want to tell anyone, but... Yes. I did do it. David tells Scott he shot Brett with a .22 rifle a little way into the bush. Then, this part's a bit gory, so he could manage the weight, he cut Brett's body in half with a handsaw and jib knife. He bagged the halves, then buried them at two beaches. He staged the campsite scene to make it look like Brett had gone hunting, including by putting the quad bike up the hill by the bush. He burned the evidence. Yeah. And so, so what, so what you've told the uh, police is all... It's obviously bullshit. Yeah. Some of it. A lot of it's actually the truth. Scott says he appreciates David's honesty. Okay. Ah, look. Fuck, mate, that's uh, trust. Fucking too bizarre a story for any to believe anyway if I did tell you the truth. Fuck yeah. It's a goodie, mate. It's true, though. Yeah. It's, you know, you're not... It's true. You're not fucking pulling my leg. Nah, mate, it's true. So, to recap, in the middle of the story that the police are play-acting around David Little, he either tells them a story about a drug killing, then under pressure changes it to the truth about committing a murder, or he tells them the truth about a drug killing, then under pressure changes it to the story about a murder, and then admits his murder story isn't believable, And Scott seems to struggle to believe it, maybe because he knows about all the incentives on David to confess whether he did it or not. Anyway, Scott says, welcome on board, buddy. David's pretty excited. Goes and tells Nick what he told Scott. Then, next day, as I mentioned in the first episode, David drives with him from Wellington to Manawatu to show them where he says he buried the body parts. He takes them to Himatangi Beach, David can only show them roughly where he buried Brett's torso, but he says it was on the tide line, and he dug a huge hole down chest deep and burned the torso with firewood. Then they head to Santoff Forest, and David leads them down a side track toward the edge of the forest. This part of the forest isn't dense. The pine tree trunks are stark and spaced out. There are pine needles underfoot. David takes them to a spot where he says he's confident he buried the bottom half of Brett's body. He says... It would be, I'll tell you right now, we'd be fucking close. It's fucking just in this area here. He says the digging was soft. He buried it down a metre, then packed the dirt on top. There's no trace of it now. Scott leaves a marker. What about the drug deal killing? David says he made it up. He tells them that was the story. After that, they head to the Yellow House Cafe in Whanganui. They're shooting the breeze. They start chatting about the moon landing. Nick says he reckons it was faked. Then Nick and Scott step outside. And that's the last David Little sees of them until his trial five years later.
Next thing he knows, he's being arrested by Detective Sergeant Gleeson of the Whanganui Police. The undercover team have literally handed the case back to the original investigation team. Detective Sergeant Gleeson tells David Little it was all a setup, a sting, and he fell for it. Then David says some things to Detective Sergeant Gleeson, and later, the prison guards, that will come back to haunt him. But more on that later. David Little now says he badly wanted to get into the organisation, and Scott just wasn't believing him that Brett's death was a drug killing. What did David have to lose? He made up a story about murdering Brett. And as we're going to see, a confession is a very convincing story. Mr Little Meets Mr Big is an RNZ production, written and presented by me, Stephen Price, with support from Victoria University of Wellington and the Michael and Suzanne Boren Foundation. Justin Gregory and Katie Gossett are the executive producers. Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts and series for RNZ. Thanks to sound engineers Blair Stagpool, Phil Benge, Mark Chesterman, Rani Powick and William Saunders. Jeremy Ansel and Steve Burridge are the Auckland and Wellington operations team leaders. The actors were Jack Sargent Shadbolt and Alex Grigg. Duncan Smith was the director. Music composed and performed by Ebony Lamb and Graham Antler. Images by Ebony Lamb. Artwork and design by Jared Bishop and RNZ. You can listen and follow all RNZ podcasts at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies. I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.